just for everyone who is visiting with us tonight, welcome. And for those who have not been paying attention for the last month or so at least, Mark and Kara, our lead pastors, are not here uh, this evening. They're down in, I believe, Aurora for Kara's brother's wedding. Um, so Mark is officiating that, and the whole family's down there just to, to take part. Um, but in lieu of this, um, I'm very honored to welcome our pastor for the evening, uh, Pastor Matthew Boardwell from Lifesong Church right here in Erie. Uh, Matthew is a um, very strong man of God. He's been praying for our church since before we were a church, and it's far before we even made it to, to Erie. So his prayers and his, his works are part of why we are here. So um, uh, without uh, any further ado, uh, let's give a warm Impact Rock welcome to Pastor Matthew. Thank you, James. You guys are always too kind. We are privileged uh, to serve our town, to serve alongside of you. Um, We just pray, and God send you. So bless you for being faithful. Keep on. I want to talk to you tonight about something that we can do together. And uh, before I do, I'd just like to ask the Lord to reveal himself in his word, uh, show us the path forward, and teach us his ways so that our lives are transformed by the glory we just sang about. Would you bow with me? Lord, we thank you, praise you. You're good. And you love us. Mm. And it is too small a thing for you to love only us. There's a a world outside in houses and neighborhoods all over Erie, Lafayette and Thornton and Brighton and Lord, you know their names, you know their places. You died for them. Your love is great. And you want to extend your love out through people just like us, people who have experienced your love, who have been transformed by it, who are being transformed by it. You want to make us new people, and in doing so, create other new people, brand new believers, transformed by the power of your word. Lord, I ask you tonight to show us how we can take the ground. I ask you to reveal in your word where your power is and how it's available to those of us who walk with you. And I ask that we would put all of our hope and all of our trust, all of our future in you. I pray it in the name of our mighty Savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, the truth is, I'm I'm tired. Uh, This past week, our our church has been doing an outreach over in one of the neighborhoods here in Erie, and we've been uh, been working very hard. Um, We've taken two... First, we baked... 900 cookies. And then we put those in packages of four, and we delivered them to 282 homes in a particular neighborhood. And while we did that, we interacted with the folks at the door and let them know some of the stuff that was going on this week. And so that kept us busy last week. And this week, uh, we held... First, we start off with a um, prayer walk in their neighborhood last Sunday afternoon with our whole church involved. Um, Monday morning we began our kids clubs and every morning for two hours from 10 till 12 we were over uh, in that neighborhood sharing the gospel with the kids who would come. And then Monday night we had a a block party of sorts to help the neighbors get to know each other. 
Wednesday night, we did a kids and youth party. And today, we wrapped up with a big carnival. So it's been a busy, busy couple weeks. But it's been a busy couple of weeks surrounding this truth I want to present to you tonight. All right. So if you've got a Bible, you might want to find Ephesians chapter 6. And we'll be looking at that in a minute. One of the, I think, advantages you have to having church on Saturday is um, you don't have Sunday afternoon baseball games getting in the way of church. Last Sunday, one of our guys was, he, he came to church and he stood at the back door. And about halfway through the sermon, I look back and he's gone. Because he has season tickets. And he and his buddy that he brought to church, I thought, isn't that wonderful? He brought his friend to church. Of course, his friend was going to the game too. So we were, they went to the game via Lifesong Church. I think that's funny. And it may surprise you, but I'm not a sports fan. I don't pay any attention to any game except the Super Bowl. And even then, I'm only interested because there's a party going on with friends I can hang out with and visit with and eat all the junk food I want. But, as ignorant as I am of sports, I am not so ignorant that I don't know these things. Not everyone on a soccer team is the goalie. And I think that's true about hockey, too. No one in baseball goes to the plate without a bat. Is that right? Okay, I'm on track. A boxer cannot win a match by only deflecting the other guy's punches. Is that right? You can't win a football game with a great defensive line, but no offense. And it's not just enough to keep your opponent from scoring. To win, you've got to score some points. You've got to get something up on that board. For a victory, you've got to take some ground. Well, if you have your Bible open to Ephesians chapter 6... I want to read to you beginning in verse 10. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, Put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation." Now, these are tremendous pieces of armor. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, who would want to go into battle without a helmet or a shield? Who would, who would want to go into battle without shoes or a breastplate to protect us? And the belt of truth defends against false ideologies, ignorance, and misunderstanding. Don't we need that? And the breastplate of righteousness defends us against sin, addictions, ungodliness. Don't we need that? The gospel of peace boots make us ready, prepared to run, to go, and win the victory that Jesus promised. Don't we need that? How about shield of faith that stops satanic arrows of doubt and unbelief? Faith to counter that. 
Don't you need that? And helmet of salvation that saves the soul from damnation and, and alternative gospels. Right? All these tools and all this weaponry is important. There's a lot of stuff being thrown at followers of Christ. Don't you feel it? Don't you experience that every day? Can't you sense the enemy's determination to take you out? Aren't you glad that we're not helpless to stand our ground against such things? But listen carefully. We are not in the battle to merely stand our ground. Right? We are not in the battle just to keep the territory we've already occupied, occupied. We're not here just to stand our ground. Now, if you're in Ephesians, you'll have to turn now. I want, to, I want you to read Matthew chapter 16. It's a verse you might know already. In Matthew 16, you, you remember the story. Jesus gathers his disciples on the side of a mountain. He says to them, Who do all the folks say that I am? And the disciples started rattling off a list of things, and they were all wrong. They were saying things like, well, you know, probably they're saying you're just one of the, uh, the prophets come back from the dead. Some are saying you're John the Baptist. They went through their list, and then and Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, that's right. And you didn't come to that on your own. The Holy Spirit revealed this to you. Peter, you're, you're the rock. And on this rock, I'll build my church. I will build my church. And what? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, tell me something about gates. Tell me, tell me do you have gates? Any of you? Where are your gates? You carry them around on your car? You take them to other people's yards and plant them? Where are your gates? They're on your property. They're on the edge of your territory, right? And what does that passage say? What did Jesus say? I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Where are those gates? They're on the edge of his territory. They're on the edge of his territory. You know, when I was a kid... We always thought that as a Christian, we would hunker down and we would defend the faith. We'd do everything we can and because the enemy was big and huge and scary and he was always assaulting us and we were bound to lose if we weren't ready to defend. But I want you to imagine the enemy taking hold of his gates and carrying them to your place so he can whack you over the head with them. Because that's what that mentality fostered in me. A misunderstanding of this basic concept. The church is to invade his space. Right? Not the other way around. The church is to invade his space. Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And as he builds his church, hell cannot stand its ground. The church is supposed to storm those gates. We are supposed to go on the offensive. And isn't that 
just right? Isn't that just right? Do you have family trapped in destructive, self-sapping habits? Do you? Do you have neighbors or friends who live under the constant domination of evil? Do you? Don't you want to see these people free to live fulfilling, self-transforming, satisfying, God-honoring lives? Is that what you want? Well, then we cannot... We cannot abandon them to despair and death. We cannot leave them hopeless behind enemy lines. We need to be the church Jesus said we would be. We need to wage war. We need to take some ground. And it is war. It is war. This past, uh, this past week, up in Fort Collins, Campus Crusade for Christ decided, perhaps you've heard, they decided to take the word crusade out of their name. And to start going now, as uh, by the shortened version they've been using for years, crew. And the reason they did that is because the word crusade has become offensive, and, and rightly so. I mean, they don't want to communicate that they're taking swords out to go after everyone who disagrees with them and, and uh, dominate them with... Uh, outdated metaphor. However, as wise as I think they may be, we do not ever want to forget that this is war. It is war. And if you don't like that metaphor, you can't read the Old Testament at all. (laughs) You can't read a half dozen Psalms without saying, what am I reading? But all the passages I want to show you tonight are all in the New Testament. I was reading Scripture this week and came across 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You probably know this passage too, but I'm going to read it to you anyway. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul wrote this in verse 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish strong arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So this passage says, look, we don't wage world... We don't wage war as the world does, but we do wage war, right? We don't fight with ordinary weapons of explosives and steel, but we do fight with weapons. Our weapons destroy strongholds. Now, tell me something about strongholds. Where do you put them? Where there's something important that you want to protect or defend, right? Where do you put them? Do you go and plunk them down in the middle of somebody else's territory? 
<laughs> strongholds are where? They're on your own territory. You can't construct the stronghold anywhere but on your territory, right? And the strongholds he talks about are false arguments, religious speculation, stubborn posturing that evades God. Our weapons take captives, right? But, but not people, thoughts, thinking patterns, beliefs that keep those people trapped. So strongholds are inside ter- enemy territory. These strongholds we're talking about are not on our own territory. They're, they're on the enemy's territory. And if we're going to wage this war, we're going to wage it on his territory. Do you see that? Our weapons, our warfare, tear those strongholds down. And we can't do it if we're crouched in our own borders, preparing to defend against an attack when the enemy carries his gates over to our part and whacks us over the head with them. We can only pull down strongholds if we're taking ground. We can only live this verse if we're going on the offensive. So back to Ephesians 6. Starting to feel like a Bible drill? It's okay. This is a good word. You're going to need it in a minute. We just read in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, and I want to make this very clear. We are not fighting against people. Right? We're not fighting people. Our battle's not against flesh and blood. If your enemy has a face, then you're fighting the wrong enemy. If your enemy has an address, then you're in the wrong battle. We're fighting spiritual war against spiritual domination that confuses people, stunts their lives, and saps their spirits. That's why our weapons are not steel or stone or gunpowder. Truth, righteousness, readiness, faith, and salvation. That's what we wage war with. And with those spiritual weapons, we can defend. But if we want to win, then we have to go beyond defending and we have to go on the offensive. Right? In Ephesians chapter 6, in verse 16, 17, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray for me also that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Here in this passage... Paul tells us how we can go beyond a defensive posture and go on the offensive. He says, in addition to these things, take up the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. And what's the sword of the Spirit? Do you have one? Do you have one? Do you make use of it? Do you know how to handle it? Because we go on the offensive. We take ground by wielding the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Every other piece of armor listed at this point is defensive. But tell me, what's a sword for? You can defend with a sword, right? You can hold it up and block the strokes, the attacks of the enemy. But I have a young fellow in our church. He does fencing.
for fun, and he travels all over the place, and he's competitive. And if all he does is block his opponent's swings, I don't even know what those are called. Strikes, okay, parries. See how much I'm into sports? I'm telling you. So if all he ever does is block them, he cannot win, right? He has to use that sword for more than defense. He has to go beyond the defensive, and he has to score a point by getting his sword to touch the other guy's outfit. And then he gets a point. He's got to make it happen. He's got to go on the offensive. A sword is not only for defense. It's not primarily for defense. It's for taking ground. It's for driving back the enemy. We go on the offensive when we use the word of God. And this isn't the only passage that talks about Scripture as a powerful force, right? You know the one from uh, Psalm 119, 105? Your word is a lamp to my feet. That's a light, a flame. It sheds light. There's power there. Or maybe the one from Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 14. Anybody memorize that one? God's people were being overwhelmed by false prophets who were talking and pretending to talk in his name. But he says, you know my word. My word's different than everybody else's. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Because the people have spoken these words, I will make my words in your mouth a fire. And these people, the wood it consumes. God's word is a consuming fire. Or over in uh, Jeremiah 23, again, Jeremiah. I'm indebted to a woman in my church that just pointed this passage out. God says to Jeremiah, Is not my word like fire and like a hammer that breaks a rock to pieces? His word is strong and it is powerful and it can knock things apart. Some of you know that. Because it's knocked things apart in your life. Things that needed to go. Things you clung clung to instead of Him. Things that you thought you could never live without. His Word was like a hammer. And it shattered those things. Or how about Hebrews chapter 4? I know some of you know this one. The Word of God is living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. His Word is like a sword that cuts through everything. All that stuff. Cuts right through it. It gets to the the bottom of things. Gets to the heart of the matter. Gets in between intentions and thoughts and motives. His Word is like a sword. And that's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6. It's a sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And if you're going to take ground, you've got to learn to wield the sword of the Spirit. See, sometimes we think that we're smart enough or clever enough to wield our own words to great effect. But our words aren't a lamp for anybody's feet. And our words are never a fire that consumes. And our words don't shatter like a hammer. Our words don't cut through all the nonsense right down to thoughts and motives of the heart. Only God's Word is that kind of powerful force for winning. So, learn what's in here. Learn to understand it. Learn to use it. And use it without fear. Carry a small one with you. 
one that's maybe a little too small to read. Carry a small one with you and, and underline it, write in it, put notes in there to help you use it, practice with it, share it with each other, talk about it all the time. Let them tell you how you're understanding or misunderstanding it. Learn to use it well. And as you learn to use it, as you grow more confident in handling the Word of God, you will become a formidable force that threatens the gates of hell and its strongholds and takes ground. Imagine. Imagine if every believer in a church this size were competently wielding the sword of the Spirit. Imagine how much ground we could take. Imagine if every Christian took this seriously. Do you think we'd be cowering in our bunkers waiting for an attack? No. No. We also take ground through fervent prayer. The rest of this passage is about praying. Here, prayer is an offensive weapon. It's, it's not assigned a metaphorical piece of armor like the other things he's mentioned. But it's still clear that Paul intends for his readers to contribute to the, to the victory of his mission by doing what? By praying. Do you see all of that? He says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Pray also for me. Oh, I'm sorry. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that when I open my mouth, words will be given to me so I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Prayer is an in integral part of this whole victory. And we take ground through fervent prayer. He says, pray. Pray in the Spirit. Pray. Pray on all occasions. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions. Pray. Pray with all kinds of prayers and requests. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Pray. You want to see those things happen, those amazing miracles, the breaking down of strongholds and the taking of ground, then you've got to learn to pray fervently. And those prayers you pray are not just for your health or your well-being or your relationships or your finances. What's the context of the prayers being prayed here? War. War. A war against dark spiritual powers, forces of evil. And have our friends and family and co-workers and fellow students and neighbors held captive. So, Direct your prayers against the gates of hell. <clears throat> Extend your concern and the reach of the Spirit into enemy territory by praying. And he says, pray for all the saints as they wield their own swords in battle. You know we do that for you. Pray for other churches in your field. We are in this together. Pray for other churches to join our field. There are not enough of us to get it done. Pray for God to extend His power through new believers who create 
new churches where other people are discipled and new aspects of the battle are engaged. My favorite Lord of the Rings scene. It took 11 hours to get to it. But it is my favorite Lord of the Rings scene. It's where King Theoden comes over the horizon with his... thousands his thousands on horseback and he looks down in a valley with tens of thousands my favorite scene in the movie I watched it again this afternoon in preparation for tonight tears rolling down my face the bravery and courage impossibility of losing I love that scene This is an aside, but I love that scene because they cannot lose, right? They charge down into the valley and they all die. They can't lose. If they could charge down in the valley and they do a lot of damage on the way, great. They can't lose. They go down in the valley and they don't lose, they can't lose. There's just no way this cavalry can lose. Love that scene. But when he gives his orders, he calls out to to Glamring, to... Aomer and to Grimbold. And he tells them all to take their own respective cavalries down into different parts of the field. They're all fighting for the same victory, but they're concentrating their efforts on other parts of the enemy. Right? Wouldn't it be great if we could think of our local churches that way? Wouldn't it be great if we prayed for one another with the fervency of brothers in arms? That a setback for one of us was a sorrow for all of us. And that the success of one meant the success of all. Even if we had to be sacrificed so you could get there. Let's learn to pray like that. Let's together learn to pray like that. He says, pray for all the saints. Keep on praying for all the saints. And he says also, pray for me as I, as I try to make the mystery of this gospel clear. You should be praying for missionaries who are fighting on enemy turf. In Romans chapter 15, verse 30, Paul wrote that the people who were reading that could join him in his struggle by praying for him. They could be right there alongside of him so many miles away if they would just simply pray for him. Is that great? They could join in the battle from that distance. As he spoke to people they never met and will never meet, they could engage this battle. They could go on the offensive as they pray. I love that. I love that. And look how he asks them to pray for him. That whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery. And down below he says, pray that I may declare it fearlessly. Or maybe your text says boldly. We take ground when we are bold with the good news. So we take ground when we wield the word. 
We take ground when we pray fervently. And we take ground when we are bold with the good news. What is the gospel? I hope that you could answer that. Right? Tell me if I'm right. Okay? That God sent Jesus to live a life like ours. That He suffered for us. That He died for the consequences of all of our sins for us. That He was buried, proving that He was dead. That He took all our sin and condemnation to the grave with Him and left them there where dead things belong. And then He rose from the dead so that we could look forward with Him to eternal life forever. Together. That's good news. It's good news for you. It's good news for me. It's good news for everybody who's heard it and everybody who hasn't heard it. It is good news. It's our life-changing, one-of-a-kind, universally necessary good news that people in enemy-occupied territory need to hear. It's our message of forgiveness and reconciliation that has to break through. It's the clean start that God promises that will help them escape. Now, you know, there are risks involved in every kind of battle. And there are certainly risks in engaging in spiritual battles. And if you decide tonight to do these things, to participate in going on the offensive and trying to take new grounds, I promise you it won't come easy. You probably know someone who is a spiritual casualty of this war. They collapsed on the battlefield. They were taken out by sin. Just as they began to threaten the gates of hell, they were overcome with doubt or fear or some moral compromise. And and now, I promise you that when your offensive intensifies, the opposition will too. But as they say, there's an app for that. And the app for that is the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. These are the things that are there to defend us from counterattack while we take ground. Right? Yeah. They're not meant as mantelpieces for people far from the front lines of battle or enjoying the comfort of their long-won victory, hoping that others will be out there doing it. (laughs) These pieces of armor are meant to protect us as we go through the battle and claim the victory that Jesus promised for us. Now, Paul said he needed them to pray that he would not be afraid. And when I promise you there'll be opposition, maybe you're afraid. Maybe you don't want to do it because you don't want to be attacked. And life's hard enough the way it is. That's true. Who wants to be attacked? Who wants to go down? Anybody? Who wants to get enemy fire? Nobody. 
But that's why he gave us all this armor, so we could use that as we went forward with the sword of his spirit, with fervent prayer, and by boldly telling the good news to people. That's what it's there for. It's so that the defensive armor will work together with the offensive armor so that we can take ground and assault the gates of hell. So don't be afraid. Pray that you won't be afraid. Pray that you'll be able to declare it fearlessly. That's what Paul wanted us to pray for. I always think that's amazing. The Apostle Paul asked ordinary Christians like you and me to pray that he would be fearless. And if he needed prayers like that, I sure do. (laughs) People may threaten you, but be bold. Because we take ground when we're bold with the good news. They may try to shut you down, but be bold. Go on, wielding that sword, praying those prayers, being bold with the good news. They may roll their eyes. You can survive that. They may make fun of you. They may even punish you at work or at school. Who knows when our government will get around to doing that, right? But we need to be bold anyway. Judge for yourself whether it's right for us to obey you or God. Because I cannot help speaking about what I've seen and heard. As you are, bold. You go on the offensive and you take new ground. Now, much is depending on us going on the offensive. There's a whole generation growing up right across the street from us without the knowledge of God or His Word. You would be amazed how many people living within a, a couple of blocks of you who have never heard what the Easter story is or who Jonah is or what Noah's about. You can tell them. But right now they're growing up without all of that. Who's going to take that ground? Somebody needs to. Who's going to do it? Marriages all around us are on the bubble. Who's going to take that ground? Will they make it or will their families unravel? Can you be bold and prayerful and word-wielding? The economy is rough and people are afraid. The patterns they've learned are keeping them enslaved. Their finances are a wreck and they're worried all the time. Who's going to take that ground? People are enslaved to addictions and beliefs that keep them from experiencing God for themselves. Who's going to take that ground? And if we don't, friends, who will? Who will? The church cannot remain in a defensive posture. We can't make it our goal just to just to survive and not lose our faith. It's got to be our goal to extend the grace and mercy of God out to people who have never known it in the first place. We've got to commit to taking ground, to going on the offensive with His Word, with our prayers, and with bold sharing of the Gospel. Can you do that with me? Can we do that together? Could Life Song and Impact Rock be counted on to do that for Erie? 
think so. And when we do, we will see enemy territory withdrawing. We will see strongholds crumbling in front of us. And people who we thought were lost and hopeless come to life, be rescued, and set free. Is that what you want to do? Let's pray.